to Get In, We're Going Healing. My name is Tova. I am your host. Today, we have a special guest. We have Kristen Taylor with us. Kristen has a master's degree in counseling psychology. She's got nearly 25 years of experience in counseling and coaching, which is kind of a lot. <laughs> um, she regularly works with CEOs and executives to help transform who they are as leaders, which is super awesome because I know most leaders actually need that stuff. Um, she helps them develop greater self-awareness, emotional intelligence, empathy, and courage, which is a big one. I mean, not that many people have that kind of courage. Um, so she also teaches mindfulness, self-compassion, emotional regulation, and the nerve, the neuroscience behind nervous system regulation. If she can help all those people, she can help you. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much, Tova. It is really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining me. So I thought maybe we, today we could talk about some of the stuff about self-compassion. I was reading some of your stuff and seeing what you've done. And self-compassion is an area that I find a lot of people struggle with, myself included. I am not awesome. I've taken the test for self-compassion by Dr. Kristen Neff on her website. And it turns out I'm not very self-compassionate. Mm -hmm. It is That's definitely an area I need some work on. Most of us are not very self-compassionate. I love that you referenced Dr. Kristen Neff. That is a great place to go if anyone wants to. It's a really easy Google it, Kristen Neff self-compassion test. It's a nice way of saying, okay, where am I? What might I need to do in terms of my own work with this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I find her work very helpful. Um, it is definitely useful in an SOS kind of situation when uh, you're not being so kind to yourself. I find her very useful. Mm -hmm. I do too. I do too. Yes. So I think the best way, to, the best place to start would be, um, why is it important for us to focus on mind, body, and spirit connection? Yeah, gosh, it's a great question. What's really come to me as of late is that for purposes of understanding it, for teaching it, we delineate that it is mind. We have a mind, body, we have a body, and then spirit. But they really are one and the same. Like we have experience, you know, spiritual experiences that are embodied. And this artificial way of looking at it um, is helpful in terms of just starting to understand. But really, I think it's very important to understand they really are one and the same. Mm -hmm. They're all the same system, which ultimately is, is spiritual. And so when I think about, for example, and we're gonna to get to self-compassion, but when I think about the fact, most of us have trauma in our life, whether it's trauma from childhood, whether it's trauma from a car accident, from a difficult relationship, from something that might've happened at work, you have this beautiful equity sign behind you for having who you are continually denied, neglected, abused, for who you are. All of us are living with some component of trauma. And so understanding both the neuroscience of what trauma, specifically in our formative years, does to the brain and then the body, because they are inextricably connected, mm -hmm. um, is so important to understand. For example, when I hear people just espousing, think positively, reframe your thoughts, mm -hmm. that is a deep concern for me. 
specific, specifically as someone who has had trauma and has had experiences of anxiety and panic and where I just feel it so much in my body, racing heart, feeling like I'm going to pass out, all of these physiological symptoms that cannot be overridden by changing my thoughts. And believe me, I have tried positively, positively, oh my God, my body's in a hijack, right? The body is in control in that moment. And so it's so important to understand what is happening at a physiological level. Number one, because when we understand what is happening on a physiological level, I believe it aids in self-compassion, that there's nothing broken about us, that this is not some sort of character defect, mm-hmm. but it's part of how we have learned to survive and adapt to difficult circumstances and thank God for fear, thank God for our nervous system. But when those adaptations no longer work as you try to move through the modern world, it's really easy to think that our suffering is some sort of extension of our failing. And that only sort of concretizes and doubles down on what's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? Why can't I fit in? Why is it that other people seem to be able to function? And we start to compare other people's outside appearance to our inside experience and we fall short mm-hmm. so understanding the mind-body connection helps to understand how actually as survivors of trauma or even stress extreme stress that it is physiology we wouldn't blame someone who had i don't know type 1 diabetes you wouldn't go oh some sort of moral failing if you understood right. what's happening and so that aids in self-compassion And then in terms of spirit, this is my perspective. We are on this planet to learn, right? Understand the universality, universality, how do you say that? Um, The unifying principles of human suffering, that it can serve as a place of connection and deep empathy as we all endeavor ideally to move on a healing journey. And it starts with... um, our own capacity and our own courage to look at our past, to understand where ego shows up, to understand where coping mechanisms and protective mechanisms show up. And to examine that through the lens of self-compassion is the only way I've ever seen of making true progress. We talk so much about empathy and especially working with leaders, it can be very difficult for them to understand how to connect with empathy, communicate empathy, and truly the first place is to start with self-compassion and empathy for oneself. And so the spiritual side of it is to recognize that this is not happening to me, it is happening for me Mm -hmm. as a way to embrace the journey as something that is continually evolving us and that we get to learn. That's how I see it as spiritual. It's funny you say that. Hold on, I made a note. <laughs> I was, I um, one of my favorite channels on YouTube is called Cinema Therapy, and um, it's uh, there's a therapist named Jonathan Decker, and then there's a filmmaker named Jonathan or uh, Alan Seawright, and the two of them compare movies and characters in movies and look at them from their psychological perspectives. And the one that I just watched was on multiple personality disorder and Gollum from Lord of the Rings. And one of the things he commented in there, um, when you're looking, 
If the core self, the ego, can learn to fulfill the roles that the other parts played, they all become whole and kindness and compassion is the key to getting there. And he explained that the, the key for Gollum to become Smeagol was to, instead of separating the two parts of his good side and his bad side, to integrate the key with compassion for himself, for the mistakes that he made when he murdered his friend. Yes, yes, that's so good. I saw Lord of the Rings a billion years ago when it first came out, so I can't remember the character terribly well, but the lesson that I'm hearing is exactly right because we have to split off often. I mean, there's the extreme of dissociative identity disorder, you know, DID, mm -hmm. um, but we all have different parts of ourselves and it's important in our work of healing to be able to bear witness to our experience and our struggle and our splitting off from a place of self-compassion mm -hmm. to say, given what I survived, it's amazing that I have been so creative, so adaptive. I found a way to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And this is how it happened. It allowed me to wake up every day and survive that day. It no longer fits, but it is exactly right, self-compassion. I've actually said that for a long time on the healing path. I've, I've been saying it for years before I really truly got into it that the coping skills that we learned in our childhood to survive the situation we were in worked okay. They worked all right in that situation, but taken out of that situation, they're kind of useless. They don't really work outside of that specific set of situations. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Sometimes they don't, and sometimes they actually really do. Like I've been working with one particular CEO and his protector, we're talking about different parts. So he grew up um, with a very domineering and abusive father. And so he learned at a very young age, there is no room for vulnerability. There's no room for feeling. There's no room for having a lot of needs, like even for him to voice the words needs publicly or you know, in any way be in some sort of situation at work where people can see that he has a need is in many ways intolerable to him emotionally and psychologically. Mm -hmm. And so he really adopted this egoic, I'm going to internalize the abuser, that protector, like suck it up, be tough, work as hard as you can, be better than anyone. And it has served him really well in his career. He is now a CEO, mm -hmm. yet he is suffering so much right? Like so much um, dissociation, not fully being present to his life, mm -hmm. the and access to joy. Tears will come when I express empathy to him and he'll, and it'll be simple empathy. Like, wow, that sounds really rough that you have so much on your shoulders and really the buck stops with you. That's got to be really hard to feel that level of responsibility for so many people in this outcome. And suddenly tears are going down his face. And he said, I don't know why I'm crying. But when you do that, I just cry, but he's not in his body because he learned from a very early age as a child, it wasn't safe to feel, but mm -hmm. even the body is tears are coming. It's this really bizarre moment. So sometimes these adaptations don't work. You're like how I survived in my little ecosystem of my family. If I try to do that elsewhere, I, I'm just going to, you know, freakishly stand out and it won't be adaptive, but other times it's so adaptive and depending on the culture we're in. 
-hmm. And so it's reinforced, like, for example, with this guy, he's like, what is the point of us talking about my childhood? Like, you know, there are people in Rwanda, there are people in Ukraine, you know, there are people in- Other people have it worse than me. Other people have it worse than me. So what is the point of this? This isn't helpful. Like, suck it up, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I'm like, ooh, protector. That's the voice of your protector showing up again. He's been really, really helpful. Not great at discernment, not great at self-compassion, but he's really working to, as the title suggests, protect you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But is there room for other parts of you? Right? Mm -hmm. No, that's an excellent point. Um, I found as I begin to have compassion for myself, It is easier to extend that compassion to other people when they mess up. When my son does something ridiculous where I'm like, honestly, in the past, it would have been, you know better. Why would you even do that? You know better. I'm able to extend that compassion to say, you know what? You made a mistake. And maybe you weren't thinking in your best self in that moment. You made a mistake and that's okay. We'll clean it up. We'll learn from it and we'll do better next time what a beautiful gift that is to your son you know think of what that is giving him and his capacity to have self-empathy and to not split off different parts of himself and to forgive himself when he makes mistakes people are so afraid that that means like oh well then there's no accountability then you're going to be lazy then you're not going to strive you won't be motivated when in fact so many studies suggest the opposite it creates much greater emotional resilience, which is the gift that you're teaching your son as I hear it. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm doing yeah. my best. Yeah, most important thing. I mean, none of us are perfect. And, right. Yeah. And you get so, to model that when you make mistakes in front right? of you. I, I do my best. I'm not <laughs> always, <laughs> again, self-compassion is not my strongest area. So I'm not always, but I have stopped saying, Oh, that was so stupid. Oh, I'm so dumb. Oh, why did I do that? That was such a stupid thing to do. I've stopped doing that to myself. I no longer say those words to myself. And now I say, oh, you know what? That was not the best decision in that moment. I really should have thought that one through. You know what? It's all right. It happened. It's over. We'll do better next time. Yes, I love that so much. That's a beautiful example. I mean, I feel like I'm talking about these bigger, broader concepts, but it's in those moments that people can relate to. You know, you make a mistake. What are you saying to yourself? What is yourself? Mm -hmm. Those are great interruptions of saying, God, I'm such an idiot too. Accident just happened. Should have thought that through. What a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, hold on, let me go back to my notes because I flipped over to my other note. So I want to talk a little bit about the neuroscience behind stress and anxiety and how we actually get our brains right. So when we're flooded with that stressful moment where we would have said, oh, I'm so stupid or anything like that, when we're flooded with those situations, how do we get out of our situation of, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I made a mistake. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. How do we bring ourselves back into a state of calm? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? So I'm sitting here debating how much I can make this a very long answer or a very short answer. Do you have a preference for long or short? Um, Whatever is going to help our viewers the most. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to kind of 
strive for medium. Okay. So I think a really helpful way of thinking about our nervous system is thinking of it like a traffic light. And everything that I'm about to share, listeners, the value in it is number one, self-awareness of being able to, in the moment, this is the mindfulness piece, in the moment, identify what state you were in, you are in. And I will explain the different states, and there are only three with this traffic light analogy. And then I will teach a breathing exercise, the how. How do you get back to the state where you are in, quote unquote, your right brain? So I'll explain the states, explain a little bit about the brain and nervous system, and then I'll teach, okay? So if we're using the analogy of a traffic light, you can think of green light. And this is all coming from what's called polyvagal theory. I'm not gonna get into it today. There's a lot to it. I'm just giving the high level. Green light is when you are feeling present. You're feeling engaged. You are super open to joy. You feel just incredibly in the moment, connected to your body, connected to other people, connected to joy, connected to curiosity, playful, right? That's the green light. And if the green light have words, it would simply say, I am, okay? So I encourage listeners to connect with times in their lives when they've felt that, okay? So they know, okay, I am in green. I am in green light. Then we go up and it's to the yellow. And yellow can be really helpful. It's when there's more of um, an arousal state energetically. So maybe you need to be on a podcast or give a presentation, or maybe um, you are feeling nervous about missing a deadline or your child is acting up. Whatever it is, there's a little bit of arousal and activation. Maybe you've got tons of work to do on a tight deadline. So it gives you that extra energy. Also, sometimes it can be very unwelcome. You want to be in green and you're like, I just feel really nervous. I'm about to do something that I've been looking forward to, but I'm scared that I'm not enough, that I won't be good, that I will fail. Like all of these narratives come and you notice your body is responding in kind with activation, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. Maybe your voice is wavering, you have sweaty palms, but you're still able to function. And if yellow light had words, it would say, I have to. A sense of, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. You're not calm and relaxed, but you're energized and stressed. Okay, sometimes helpful, sometimes hurtful. Going up the traffic light, then we're to the red. And the red is when things have gotten so incredibly stressful that you feel like, and, and this is actually not conscious. So I say you feel like, but it's actually, it's not a conscious state. It is a neurosystem, nervous system uh, response to triggers, to stimulation. Things feel so overwhelming that you don't feel a sense of agency. <clears throat> feels like no matter what I do, I won't win. Things are so overwhelming, whether it's the COVID epidemic, whether it's a child who lives in an abusive environment where they have adopted learned helplessness. Even if I fight, I get hurt. If I don't fight, I get hurt. 
life in my marriage is such that doesn't matter what I do, there's no way of surviving intact. So it's almost like playing possum. We shut down, the nervous system shuts down. You kind of feel dissociated, kind of like I was talking about my client, you kind of float away. And if it had words, the red light would say, I can't, I can't. And so noticing, and, and people who often are dealing with chronic depression can feel that way. And numbing out a sense of floating separate from the body, a sense of despair. We can move in and out of those, either like I'm present and I'm enjoyed, connected to playfulness, curiosity. I'm in green, yellow. I'm a little agitated. It could be good, could be bad, depending on the context and your relationship to it. Or red, I'm shut down, okay? So you had asked, when we get really worked up, how do we return to a baseline of green? So I wanted people to have a metaphor so they can tune in, again, the mindfulness place and go, what color am I right now? And so what happens when we are either in yellow or red, what's happening in our brain is that the most primitive part of our brain is part of the limbic system connects us to like the mammalian part of our brain, it gets activated. And within the limbic system is what's called the amygdala. And John Gottman, who is a very famous psychologist, see the smile? Know who he is, yep. Good. He calls this an amygdala hijack. Let's say you're about to give a presentation. Most people can connect to the fear of public speaking. You're about to give a presentation. There are those who are like, hey, I feel really alive and this is fantastic. I'm more of an extrovert. I have some energy, but I can't wait to connect with the audience. Most of us feel like, oh my God, I got to get in front of people. What if they judge me? What if I sound dumb? Blah, blah, blah. So you get into, it's the emotion center of the brain. You can get into an amygdala hijack where you're not able to connect with what's called your prefrontal cortex, which is the most evolved part where there is that playfulness, the curiosity, the social engagement, the green. And so you recognize, oh, I'm being hijacked right now. Maybe your kid's having a temper tantrum and you're like, I'm starting to lose it. You are in an amygdala hijack. So you can even have clients who are like, I'm hijacking or what was, I'm in an amygdala. (laughs) So to recognize it is so important so that you can do something about it. This is the longest answer. I hope this is okay. It's fine. (laughs) Okay, okay, good, okay, good. So that being said, I want to explain very simply, there are two branches of our nervous system. There is sympathetic and there is parasympathetic. Sympathetic is heightening arousal. Imagine as you're like um, merging onto the freeway. You want to get going fast. So you hit the accelerator, hit the pedal to go fast. That is sympathetic. Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. You're zooming along. Parasympathetic is rest and digest. That's when you're chilly chill in front of Netflix and you're super relaxed. That is the, the break. That is down-regulating. One's up-regulating, one is down-regulating. So the beautiful thing is that we all built in have the ability to change our nervous system so that we can down-regulate. We can get out of the amygdala into the prefrontal cortex and have a nervous system regulation experience of feeling chilly chill and back to green. And we do that through breathing. There's many ways to do it, but this to me is the simplest and most immediate. 
And so there's something that I teach called, and so many millions of people use this, ratio breathing. When we inhale, our heart rate and blood pressure go up. When we exhale, our blood pressure and heart rate go down. When we exhale, we are engaging and activating parasympathetic. So ratio breathing just says, inhale through your nose for a shorter period of time than you exhale through your mouth. So maybe you inhale through your nose for a count of four, five. Then you exhale through your mouth through pursed lips. It's almost like I think of it as like a bicycle pump. You know how you push the bicycle pump? It's not just slack. It's like... Mm -hmm. You're extending the out breath. And when you extend the out breath, you get this lovely parasympathetic engagement and everything slows down and you actually can change your physiology. And what you are doing, Tova, is you are rewiring your brain for relaxation and safety. So the more you can consciously do that, the more you are training your body how to, from an activated state, return to calm. I love it. I love it. I actually have found that to be incredibly true. Once I started on my meditation journey and doing a meditation each day, and then trying to do a different style of meditation in the evening, more in the morning tends to be more guided meditation and focused on the inhale and the exhale and focused on my body as it moves. And in the evening, I try to do more connecting with higher self, connecting with whatever else is around and kind of more open to, all right, what information needs to be shared? What part of me needs to speak? What part needs to come up and talk? But I couldn't do that if I didn't do the morning one where I focus on, oh, I'm thinking, okay, back to the breath. Oh, I'm thinking again. <laughs> Bring it back to the breath. Oh, there I go again. I am off on a tangent of thought. Okay, back to the breath again. Yes, you are doing the work. That is so impressive. You are absolutely doing the work. And what I would love that you just mentioned that I want to underscore is people feel like I can't meditate. My brain's all over the place. All of our brains are all over the place. I want to demystify meditation to say meditation is repeatedly the act of, you know, trailing thoughts, bring them back to center, trailing thoughts, bring them back to present moment. It's not just you meditate and the expectation is I am just this empty vessel, fully present. That happens after years and years and years and sometimes may not happen. It is the discipline of moving the thoughts, noticing them from neutrality and curiosity back to the present moment repeatedly, which is what you're doing, which is perfect. It used to happen a lot when I would massage people. <laughs> I would, it would be really quiet and then my brain would wander off on a thought and then I'd realize oh I've been massaging the same spot for like the last 20 seconds okay I gotta move on oh no the, well depending on if you're working on shoulders or back that tends to be 20 minutes in that area alone yeah. uh, but I found I would just my my brain would be lost in thought and then I'd forget what I was working on because I, I mean I would still do what I'm doing more on autopilot, but I wouldn't really be focused. And once I found the meditative practice, I would actually use that time during my massages to actively practice it. When I noticed my brain was wandering off, oh, focus back on what I'm doing. Bring my awareness back to where I am. That's so good. There's, there's fancy terms for that. Our monkey brain, when the thoughts keep floating us everywhere, but the present moment, it's called default mode network and they do like functional MRIs and brain scans to really notice where where the activity is in the brain. 
And then what you're talking about is, okay, bring myself back to, I'm massaging this person to truly being in the moment, my hands connected to my heart, my mind, to this person being present, which is so hard to be. That's mm-hmm. called task positive. And it really talking about neuroplasticity that people who do practice meditation, mindfulness, yoga, Tai Chi, their brains are different from those who do not. They have more emotional resilience. They have greater what's called heart rate variability. They have a more toned vagus nerve. They have less, they have more stress resilience, I should say. Again, well done. That's so cool. Well, thank you. Um, So I wanted to ask, why is it so important that we learn to build self-compassion for our personal growth? Why is that such a big deal? Can we get along in our personal growth without it or do we like really need it? Yeah, we really need it. We really, really need it. So what it does, when you think about personal growth, I think about self-awareness and emotional intelligence. And ideally that's what we're all aiming for is emotional intelligence, the ability to connect with ourselves and other people, to be more in a unified consciousness of love, connection, that we're co-regulating with people, where Mm -hmm. people their affinity, where they feel greater safety, where they can show up for who they are and feel seen. We all want to feel seen, heard, and understood. We all want to have psychological safety so that differing ideas can be exchanged with people who can say, I don't believe what you believe, but I can hear your experience and honor your experience. And we can move towards reconciliation, restoration, and healing politically, socially, interpersonally, right? So that starts with a great deal of emotional awareness and um, personal awareness. The problem, if we don't have self-compassion, is that we are living in ego. Egos are really important. They allow us to move through the world. They are protective, but they keep us very small. They keep us in scarcity. They keep us in competition. They keep us in wanting revenge. They keep us in there's not enough to go around. Mm-hmm. It's very toxic if we were always living in that place. And I think collectively, and I'll speak because I'm in the United States, we are in ego and scarcity. When you look at what's going on um, socially and politically. And so in order to actually feel our feelings, and I'm thinking of the work of Brene Brown, even being vulnerable with ourselves, it requires great vulnerability to not only acknowledge our flaws and our weaknesses and our places of wounding, but it also takes immense vulnerability to honor our brilliance and our strengths. The ego is not so great at that. The ego is all about protecting, keeping it locked in and comparing. To do real deep work that leads to the things that I spoke to, we need to say, ego, I honor you, thank you. And maybe look at places where shame, speaking of Brene Brown, shame comes up. And so if I may, I wanna share a story to illustrate what this looks like in my own life, because it's one thing to talk about it in broad strokes, 
from sort of like 30,000 feet looking down versus right. really this is what it's like in this moment. So I'd like to share a story to illustrate this, if I may. Please do. Okay. So in the home that I grew up in, there was a lot of anger, but I was explicitly told, you cannot be angry. You need to be a good girl. And that is how I stayed safe. Doesn't mean I didn't have a ton of anger, but thinking of the traffic light, I was often in red. I was shut down because it wasn't safe to feel all my feelings, have my needs met. Because sometimes my need was, I'm angry. I'm scared. This is not okay. Protest. This is not okay. I'm here. I need you. Where did you go? Mm -hmm. And so my adaptation was to internalize and to shut down. And then as I got older, the only I needed to find a way to express anger and it would come across as snarky and passive aggressive, two lovely qualities, lovely. <laughs> but when you're feeling injustice and you're feeling disempowered and you have a well of rage that doesn't even that is not even about that moment. Maybe it's a argument with my husband. It's about years and years from my childhood of just holding on, locking in my body. And now I struggle with autoimmune issues and I know that it is connected. There's this well of anger, but the habit, thinking of neuroplasticity, the wiring of the brain of it's gonna come out sideways. So the situation is my husband and I are both driving to different places. He's behind me in his car. And I just wanted to chill out and be by myself. I wanted to take the back roads. I was going to go, it was, it was my birthday and I was going to go buy my favorite smoothie, this really decadent smoothie that I'm one day a year. This is my ritual. I get this smoothie on my birthday and he's behind me and we're on Bluetooth talking and he's saying, where are you going? Why are you going that way? And I just had this image of, I'm going to leave the house. Now it's just me, myself and I. I don't have to think about anyone else. I don't have to worry about anyone else. I'm going to go these lovely back roads. And here he is calling. What are you doing? Where are you going? And I felt anger. Right. And instead of immediately understanding what was happening, which is really hard to do, I just had this physiological sense of anger. And I went into the narrative, trying to control me. What does it matter? Get away from me. You know, why do you always have to be in charge? Like all of this stuff and whatever it's a never and always, you know, that ego is at play. I got very defended and I was defending my ego. So I got snarky. What are you trying to follow me? And well, what does it matter? What, you know, I said, I don't remember what I said, but it was passive aggressive and it was snarky and it was connected to my ego. Here's where self-compassion comes in. If I was not deeply trying to work, and this is like always a practice, you're never done, but there is progress because as long as we are alive, we are a work in progress. And he just said to me, Kristen, I don't want to do this with you today. Now I'm really pissed. <laughs> that one's so triggering. <laughs> now the ego's like, oh, you don't want to do this with me today? I'm the best, you know, all the stuff. And I'm like, and then I'm simultaneously judging myself. I teach this and look at me. And if my clients could see me, like all of it is coming up, this self-loathing, anger, all this stuff is happening to me. If I was not working on self-compassion there, it would stay. And think of what that would do to my relationship to myself and my relationship to my husband. We hung up, luckily. And I actually pulled aside, pulled over, and I did ratio breathing like I just taught. 
And this is where I showed up in self-compassion. And this is the vulnerability of self-compassion. And this is the starting to practice empathy. And I just placed my hand on my heart and I closed my eyes and I said, it's happening. And I want you to notice that sentence, it's happening. It is neutral. I am not good. I'm not bad. My husband's not good. It's not, he's not bad. It's this situation is happening right now. A really nice phrase for mindfulness. It's happening. And with my hand on my heart, I simply said, this is the place that's hard for you. And I love you, sweetheart. And then the ego could melt. And I could show up fully accepting all of who I was, all of the egoic defending. I could get to that tender, soft place. And what that allowed me to do was take responsibility. Not from an egoic place of like, I just want this, want this fight to stop so that you know it doesn't have to be tense between the two of us, but I could fully take responsibility so that we could have repair in our relationship and that I could be seen for what I just went through. Not from, again, I'm not responsible, but even inviting him to have compassion and letting him in, letting him into how vulnerable I am. So then I was able to call him and say, I'm calling back to say, I take responsibility for what happened. And if you're open and if the timing's not right, that's okay. But if you're open, I'd like to share what just happened for me. And I'm really working on this. And this is what I'm gonna do and here's what I need. That's advancing connection, intimacy, vulnerability, healing. But if the ego is there and I didn't practice self-compassion, we would be locked in. So that is my story. I think I've lived your story. <laughs> In some way. How have you lived it? What does that say to you? What comes um, up for you? That's pretty much like every fight my husband and I have. Um, I am working on being aware of when my ego has jumped up. I was doing well for a while and then life happened and I stopped doing my daily meditation because it just, I was, I would go to bed just exhausted. We, everything in life happened. We, we sold our, we bought a new house and sold our house within the span of a month and moved. Oh, holy cow. <laughs> so it was packing and busyness and frustration while still trying to work on the things that I had to maintain on top of adding that. And my, my husband works midnights, so mm -hmm. he sleeps during the day and then our son comes home and then it's parenting and then it's, he goes to work. And so my ability to get help during the day is limited. So that meant I had to do a lot of work on my own and all of my stuff got set to the side. And I did notice by doing that, that my self-compassion, my ego, all of those things became incredibly problematic. And I do struggle with when, well, yes, I do currently struggle. I am better than what I was, but I do still struggle with when I mess up getting defensive, particularly because his response is he's doing the work by proxy, but not necessarily actively doing the work. So we're still egos 
coming at each other when there's conflict rather than both of us being conscious and aware. So I tend to be a little defensive because his way of responding tends to be, like you said, passive aggressive, snarky, sarcastic, which then sets me off. And then off goes my ego of, well, how dare you talk to me like that? Why do you get to talk to me like that when I wouldn't talk to you like that? Then we forget about what the issue was. I forget to take responsibility for whatever it is that he's bringing up. Feedback is not my best strong suit. I am not awesome at negative feedback. I'm working at it, but I am not awesome. Uh, it's hard. I mean, I relate so much to what you're saying and there's so much nuance in that. There's no goodbye, good guy, bad guy, but anger, I heard in you anger. And I think anger, especially if, I think for everyone, I hear it a lot as really challenging in women and people who have more historically been underrepresented or oppressed. And it's such an important thing. It's, you know, anger is an initiation to care. What I heard in you is a boundary that is not okay. And so how do we, and this is really something I'm, I'm working on. How do we navigate our relationship with anger? Because it's important. I think it can be seen like, well, I'm practicing self-compassion, mindfulness. I need to be just like so Zen all the time. Like right. anger is really important. You know, sometimes it's important to yell or to, you know, punch a punching bag or to crack the hell out of a baseball with a baseball bat or the batting cages. Like it's really important energy. And if we feel like we're not entitled to it or we're somehow falling off the wagon of our personal development and compassion, anger can be an extension of our own self-compassion. I think of like Black Lives Matter, the protests, like F no, no, enough. Because emotions are energy. We are all energy. Mm-hmm. Moving emotions matters. And if someone is crossing a line, it's okay to yell. Okay to say, not on my watch. Mm-hmm. No? Anyway, I just wanted to say that because it was so resonant for me. Mm-hmm. You know, And then when I think about the work in self-compassion, I think about relationships like we're not always going to be just like conscious and connected and in green right? We're not always going to be there. It's not when we make mistakes, because we will, it's how do we bring ourselves back? And compassion is the route. Self-compassion and compassion towards others is the route. And knowing your boundaries and limits to say, because I have self-compassion, that was not okay. That's really good. (laughs) That's really good. (laughs) So what is it that makes self-compassion so hard? Why, Why is it so challenging for all of us? I think that's a really hard thing to answer. Um, I could write a book on why it's so hard because there's so many different reasons contingent on people's own particular families of origin, their own cultures, their own genders, their own experiences. So it's hard to say one reason. So I'll go again, really high level. Um, I think particularly as children, when there's so many things that are outside of our control, we internalize, you know, if we see dysfunction, we internalize because that's our only sense of agency, Mm -hmm. right? So we internalize the shame, we internalize the darkness, we internalize if I could just be better. For me, if if I could just be a good girl, if I could be the nicest girl, then I will be safe. 
mm-hmm. is mine. For other people, it's internalizing the bully. If I can be tougher, smarter, if I can never be vulnerable. So there are a lot of different ways. So it's important. And I encourage your listeners to think about what have I internalized that has kept me safe and actually disconnected from the tenderness of that little boy, little girl, little person inside of me. And then we live in a world of competition and we live in a world of living from the outside in versus the inside out. And what I mean by that is there's so many measurements of our worth based on where we live, our zip code, what we do for a living. Um, I mean, there's so many different measuring indicators of our worth. Mm -hmm. Inside out living is exactly what I'm talking about is tuning in um, with self-compassion, growing in our self-awareness. But I know that a lot of people, myself included, um, so much less than it was. I mean, I really will give myself credit for that. They feel like if they adopt an attitude and a process of self-compassion, it goes back to what I was saying before. It's almost like they're giving themselves a get out of jail free card, that they will lose their motivation, that they will get lazy. They will stop eating, writing, exercising, and they'll just be like, ah, it's all about love. I'm good. Or maybe if they have a goal, if they're not continually hard on themselves, that they're just suddenly going to lose focus and they won't be the achiever that they are. That it's to my point about this client that I was working with, like so much of his internalized protector, that part of himself that shut down the vulnerability, that's, it was really, um, encouraged and it led to becoming a CEO, right? He's killing himself on so many different levels, you know, Mm -hmm. like emotionally, physically, spiritually, and and I'm killing slowly, but surely he's harming himself is a better way of saying it because he's so detached from himself. But to let that go is what they think. They think I can't ever embody the protector if I'm just in self-compassion. And it requires tremendous vulnerability to feel our feelings. Self-compassion requires that we feel our feelings, our anger, our sadness, our grief, our resentment, things that are like, and if we talk again, I I hope we get to talk a bit about emotional regulation because it's anything but comfortable. It takes tremendous courage to be in the energy of those feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people, you know, don't want to do that. So when I hear people Either they're overworking, they're overdrinking, they're overeating, they're overexercising, they're watching too much TV, they're on their phone too much. Really, the question that comes to mind first is, what are you most unwilling to feel? Right? What are you most unwilling to feel? But it keeps them, again, using the word adaptive, adaptive in some ways to their world. And it's what we covet what is familiar, not what is healthy. Mm-hmm. And self-compassion just says, nope. Let's, let's not do that anymore. Let's try something new. That's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, that was actually a really great answer. <laughs> so if you don't mind, I, I, wouldn't, I would love to finish it out with if you could lead everyone in like a self-compassion meditation, if you're up for that. Oh my goodness, you're putting me on the spot. Tova. <laughs> um. You know what I'd maybe some affirmations. Yeah. You know what I'd rather do? I'd rather lead them through breathing. Um, 
So let me let me do it this way. I want to lead them through breathing, but I asked, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it now. I asked for everyone to find a place to sit comfortably. You want to return to the body, to be in this moment. And so you're sitting comfortably, but in a dignified manner. If you're lying down, listening, that's okay too, as long as you are awake. And to feel your body, whether it's in the chair or in the bed, on the couch, know that right now you are safe. And that there is so much love. And that your guides, God, however you connect with the divine, is always with you. Always with you. And that energy is with you now. And this moment of being here right now is precious. And you are precious. And everything that you have on your plate and in your life, you can wait because you matter. And what I invite you to do is actually to start with an exhale. Exhaling through your mouth. Just let your shoulders drop. Noticing the melting of the muscles. And then resume breathing normally. Feeling the weight of your body as you trust the chair, the sofa, the couch to hold you. And when you are ready, we're going to do four breath cycles. We're going to start breathing through the nose. And before we do, there's no right or wrong. Be a count of three, it could be a count of four, count of five. Tune into your body. And when you are ready, inhale through your nose. When you are ready, exhale through pursed lips like you're blowing through a straw, slowly extending the breath, counting. Making it longer than the inhale. And when your body is naturally ready to inhale, then it is in through the nose. Counting as you go. And out through the mouth. Your extended breath. I will give you the space for two more breath cycles or wherever you are, could be three. Notice the sensation of the breath of the air. Is it cool? Is it warm? Where do you feel it in your body? As it moves through your nose, throat, your lungs. When you are ready, you're returning to this moment in your life knowing that you gave yourself the gift of regulating your body, treating it with kindness. And when you are ready, simply open your eyes. That was wonderful. That Thank you so much. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. Now my dog is starting to bark, so it's perfect. <laughs> I mean, 
the segue out. I very much appreciate you as a guest. This was a wonderful talk and I, I definitely want to have you come back. Like there's emotional regulation. Yes, we need to have a much deeper <laughs> talk about that. It was truly a pleasure. I am just um, really appreciative to be a part of this and I'm appreciative for you having made this happen. You know, you took an idea wow. and you brought it to life. You manifested it and I just know that you are impacting so many people who need to hear your message. So I just want to say thank you. I appreciate that about you. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. You are also doing the same. We are on the same path of helping to uplift everybody. If everybody could let go of their traumas and just be their authentic selves, it would be so great. Yes, I agree. I agree to that 100%. All right. Thank you for having so, me next time. Thank you, Kristen. We'll definitely talk soon. All right, take care. Bye. So I hope that talk was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed it. Dear human, fellow human who is on the same struggle, on the same journey. I hope that uh, Kristen was able to help you. I hope her talk on self-compassion was able to help you. There are so many ways that we can delve into self-compassion. And as she said, the key, the key to our personal growth is being able to have compassion for ourselves, is be able to recognize we're not perfect. There is no such thing that is based out of ego. When we are being our true authentic selves, we're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make foolish decisions that aren't in line with who we want to be. That's okay. We're reprogramming old programming. The programming that someone else gave you, it's time to recode it and change it into something else. And this is the time, and this is the way we're going to do it. So thank you so much for joining me. Until next time, love and light, fellow human.